Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. There's the saying that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. There's no crystal ball to tell us how the election of 2016 is going to affect our lives. We do know the law applies to everyone, free and incarcerated, rich and poor, millennials, yuppies and baby boomers, and the newly born. As executive producer of Life of the Law, we're listening to you. Send us an email with your concerns, ideas, stories about your life with the law. Tell us who you are. As together, one nation, we move through the days, months, and years to come. Life of the Law will listen, document, investigate, and publish what you share with us. Connect at lifeofthelaw.org. The writer William Nicholson once said, We read to know we're not alone. At Life of the Law, we're beginning our commitment to inclusivity by sharing stories from men long locked up in prisons for breaking the law. Their stories are fiction and nonfiction, spoken word and hymn verse. The live storytelling event happened on November 12th inside San Quentin State Prison. Down on the yard, inside a double-wide modular bungalow, much like those plopped down on public school yards, the men stood before an audience of free and incarcerated and shared their memories, dreams, and nightmares. We'll begin with an introduction by Zoe Mullery, the Creative Writing Program's volunteer instructor. A few years ago, we had the amazing writer Juno Diaz come in and visit our classroom. He came in twice, actually. And so he wrote a foreword to one of our anthologies. And so I'm going to read just a little bit from his foreword. To heed the voices within our prison system as a society would mean that we would learn things about ourselves we would otherwise prefer to keep locked up. And in learning these things, we would change not only our societal systems, but our deepest selves. Until that impossible day comes, let these stories, these poems, these testimonies, these songs from behind bars serve ever to remind us of the people we are locking up men and women who are, for all that they have done and that has been done to them, our brothers and sisters. Let these writings serve ever to remind us of the distance we have yet to travel as a society, as a race. Let these words keep us company. Let them comfort us. Let them guide us and teach us and warn us and scold us. Let these words remind us of who we are and who we could be until that astonishing day dawns when we are ready to take that first step out of darkness and into light. Our new MC this year, Kenny Bryden. Kenny's been in my class for, I believe, 12 years. Kenny, take it away. Oh, I forgot. I forgot to say, Kenny's going to be reading a story called As the Key Turns, a prison soap opera, and it is fiction. George and I stepped into the office. Captain Langer, can we have a minute of your time? He kept reading the report I typed and raised a finger. A plaque on his desk read, the buck stops here, so don't piss me off. That depends, he said, putting down the report. Is this going to cost me? I've been your clerk now for two years, sir. He said, so this will cost me. Yes, we need a sponsor for our lifers group. He laughed. You want my help to get you out your ass out of prison and deprive me of your mediocre clerk skills? He put a finger on his chin and tapped. Hmm, let me see. What the hell, I'll do it. Thanks, Cap, I'll do the paperwork. On Friday night, I entered the meeting room with my cellmate, Paul. George shook his hand. Hey, good to see you, he gripped, his, he gripped my hand. Hey, Jared, thanks for helping out. I wasn't happy to see Mick enter. His hair was dirty and the shadows under his eyes told me he'd been on a meth run. He gave a sour look my way and another of anger and disgust at seeing Paul. In 10 minutes, about 40 guys were seated and cigarette smoke filled the room. Okay, George said, welcome to the first meeting of the Life Process Group. I'm your chairman. There was a timid knock and someone entered with wild curly hair. Is this a lifer group? Yes, it is, Herbie, George said. Go have a seat. As he entered, someone whispered, break out the butterfly nets. 
Mike coughed and, and said, George? He nodded. What's up? I think we need to set limits on who's accepted. My cellmate laughed and stood. No, George answered. This is for everyone. That's on paper, Mick said, pounding his fist on his knee. We need our own standards. He means me, George, Paul said, and started to leave. George held up a hand. No, Paul, wait. I stood up. If he's not welcome, I'm not a part of it either. Oh, really, Mick said. You need your daddy? The room went quiet. Come on, Mick, George said. Is that what you want the parole board to see? Back in the day, I said, pointing at him, I'd stab the dog shit out of you for saying that. He crossed his arms and grinned. My Sally looked from Mick to me. George, Paul said, motioning with his head, step out of the way. His smirk dropped like a rock as I approached, but Herbie interrupted with a raised hand. What, Herbie, I asked. Is there going to be coffee and cookies? I laughed along with everyone except Mick. Yes, Herbie, George said, starting next week. I glared at Mick, and we've got some issues of respect to iron out. Early Monday morning, I sat in my small side office reading my Bible when the captain passed by. I picked up his cup and poured him coffee. He unlocked our shared door. Morning, Captain. Morning, he said, and took the steaming mug. How'd it go at the meeting? There was a lot of BS. He took a sip. Found out your partners in crime can be damn selfish? How'd you know? He went into his office and I followed. In investigations, I got to know quite a few of them. But these guys won't come back, I said, mostly. I like the way you included mostly. He nodded. Of course they'll stay out, mostly. But I don't think they've changed a whole hell of a lot. Not really. He sipped again. They've just been kicked in the ass hard enough and long enough that they'll stay on the right side of the law. Really, I said, is that what you think of me? He paused, thinking. Those burritos you and your fellow clerks were eating, what about them? Where'd you get the meat, onion, and cheese that went into them? Well, uh, the answer you're fucking stumbling over is you stole the shit out of the kitchen. Captain, you ate one. Yeah, he said, not bad for prison food. So what's your point, I asked. You threatened to stab the dog shit out of someone? I hung my head. Why am I not surprised you heard? Good, he said, nodding. At least you didn't make it worse by running a bunch of lies up a flagpole. I sighed. Captain, you give that snitch your home phone number or what? Oh, I know all about the piece of shit you wanted to put a knife into. He pointed. Get off that damn soapbox. He let those words sink in. At times, you act as if when people see the word rehabilitated, they think of you. I'll soon be in the dictionary. Yeah, I can't wait. But in the meantime, he said, don't kid yourself. And don't be such a phony, I decide to bust you next time you make burritos. This time we got sour cream. You want one? <laughs> what you can do, he said, is pour me more coffee. Get that damn group running the way it's supposed to and take your sorry criminal ass back to work. I picked up his mug. Yes, boss, back to the salt mines. I headed to my office. He said, you're a good clerk, Mendron. I raised the cup above my head. Thank you, sir. Kevin Valverde has written for San Quentin News. His poetry and stories have appeared in Iron City, 580 Split, and Brothers in Pen anthologies. He will be reading a fiction story entitled Collateral Damage. The following excerpt has been translated from the pages of a child's notebook found in the rubble of a home somewhere in Iraq. Last night, bombs started falling from the sky. They were very loud and scary, like big booms of thunder. They made the whole house shake, so we all ran outside. There were many people in the street, and everyone looked scared. We could see black smoke in the sky. It wasn't close, but everyone was still scared. Some people said it was the Americans, but I don't believe them. I know we learned in school that our governments don't get along, but the Americans are fighting a war against our neighbors. Not Iraqis. Besides, we didn't do anything to them. Mother said I should keep writing in my school journal. She said it will help me feel better, but I'm still scared. More bombs fell from the sky last night. I heard that my school was destroyed and some of my friends were killed by bombs that fell on their homes. So now I believe what everyone says about the Americans. 
I don't know what we did to make them want to drop bombs on us. I wanted to write a letter to Mr. George Bush and tell him we were sorry for whatever he did and let him know it was probably just a misunderstanding. But Mother said it wouldn't do any good. She said it had to do with something that happened to his Baba a long time ago, something he was embarrassed about. I asked her what it was, but all she said was, it's okay, baby, don't you worry about that. I still wanted to write to Mr. Bush and tell him we were sorry his Baba was embarrassed. Bombs fell out of the sky again today. Baba says we have to stay inside even when the house is shaking. We have to hide from the bombs and sleep in the middle of our house. We're not allowed to turn on any lights at night. It's very scary and hard to see. Sometimes I trip and fall down. The bombs have been falling out of the sky for many days now. We've already run out of fruit and meat, but not dates. Mother says we have to ration our food so we can only eat one small meal a day before it gets too dark. Sometimes my tummy makes noises when it's hungry, but I don't tell anyone. Every day I hear sirens from ambulances. Sometimes they sound close and sometimes far away. I always worry that someone is hurt. Maybe one of my teachers or friends was hurt by a bomb. I miss my teachers and all of my friends. I hope the bomb stops soon. Yesterday the bomb stopped falling, but we stayed inside until today. When we finally went outside, there were many people in the streets. The grown-ups all talked to each other. Some of them hugged and cried. Others waved their hands at the sky and cursed the Americans. Many of the homes in our neighborhood were damaged by the bombs. I don't know if anyone was hurt. No one would talk about that. We needed food, so Mother took me to the market. The whole town was a mess. Many of the buildings were destroyed by the bombs. And there were stones and bricks everywhere, in the streets and walkways. And everything was covered with gray dust. It was everywhere and made people cough, even the girls and women whose faces were covered with the Birkin veil. When we got to the market, it was, it was crowded. I never saw so many people at the market before. Most of the stalls were empty, and there was no meat hanging anywhere, not even one old goat. Even the damaged food was taken. All of the shelves in the stores that weren't bombed were bare too, and everyone looked sad and angry. Some people argued and fought with each other over the things they wanted, but not the way they do when they try to get a good deal. I saw a boy from my school named Jafar while we were at the market. He said, I hate the Americans. When I'm older, I'm going to go to America and kill them all. I was surprised to hear him say such things. In school, he always seemed very quiet and gentle. He told me that an American bomb fell on his neighbor Mata's home and she and her family died. He said that he and Mata had been friends since they were little. I didn't know what to say except, I'm sorry. I didn't know Mata, she was older than me. I think I said hello to her once and she smiled, but I don't remember for sure now. I don't know why the Americans would want to kill Mata. I told mother what Jafur had told me. I hate the Americans too, I whispered. You shouldn't hate anyone, my dear, even those who do wrong to you, she said. I didn't say anything else after that, but secretly, I still hate the Americans, even though I don't want to. The bomb started falling again today. I asked mother how long we would have to keep hiding from the Americans' bombs. She said, we'll see. She doesn't look very happy these days. I miss her smile. She used to smile all the time and sing. She liked to sing when she was making dinner. Sometimes she would sing to me when I was scared or my tummy hurt. I haven't heard her sing anything since the bombs started falling. She and Baba just talk and whisper all the time now, but they don't smile. Baba keeps saying, don't worry my little flower, everything will be all right. But I can see that his eyes look worried. Joe's going to be reading a fiction piece called Glasses. Mr. Crowder, my buddy and ally in prose, writes as a lifeline which leads him out of the dark and nightmares of his place on spectrum. His stories are the line of defense against intrusive imagery and nightmares, and once written and bound by ink and page to never assault him again. Joe? Chapter 1, Glasses, from the novel Walk. I looked at the ground. Crack. 
crack, pothole. My peripheral catches the burned-out skeleton of a car. The semi-quiet thud of footsteps follows mine. The wind blowing through the corpses of dead and stalled-out vehicles. Dark stains through windshields and on the asphalt. I hope those stains on the ground are oil, but I know they're not. There's a skull next to the tire of what looks like an old Chrysler minivan. The desiccated corpse is on top of the hood wearing a flowery print dress. I see myself in the dirt-smeared panel door window of the van, sigh with relief as I walk past the corpse, the paranoia leaving me. The faces of my two friends come into the window's reflection seconds after mine, each of them looking at the skull and dress-wearing corpse. No head means that something took it for food. No body means that something worse claimed it and is currently stalking us, waiting for nightfall and us to stop. The snap of a trench coat's tails flicking hard by the wind takes me out of my thoughts over the dead woman's body. The sound causes me to look over my left to my left to see who wears it. I see the 45 Colt revolver glint dully in the afternoon light. It sits on his right thigh in an old thigh-tied holster. It creaks as he moves. He unconsciously adjusts the faded, stone-gray-colored Swiss Army trench coat. The revolver reminds me of what else was under that old coat. A sawed-off 12-gauge, another 45 semi-auto on his other hip, and a police holster. Two heavy combat knives and one long knife. Trenchcoat notices me and nods. He flexes his hands in his dark brown leather gloves, shakes his shaggy dark ginger brown hair out of his eyes, and looks to the road again. A soda can goes flying and bounces off a gutted-out Chevy S10. I look to where the can flew from, over at the grim-faced Mexican man on my right. The can rattles in the wind as it rolls down the road racing us. I can't remember the last time I had a fucking Coke. Years. Grim matches my pace unconsciously whilst he chews his thumbnail. Blue jeans with Wolverine work boots, a black t-shirt, hoodie sweatshirt, and an old coffee brown leather jacket. An old Dallas Cowboys baseball cap rounded out his outfit, no matter how queer I told him it was. Grim looks at me over his fist as he chews his nail. His eyes drift back over my shoulder at the dead woman. Trouble? His eyes say, tightening his hand reaching for the machete handle slung reverse down his back. I shake my head. No. No trouble. Good. Grim relaxes. South. We're following what's left of the I-5 of California. In what's left of California. South. Home. I'm not sure what year it is. I don't remember how long it's been since the breach. I just try to do two things. Stay alive. Stay sane. Time is funny now since the breach. One day lasts for 18 hours, like a mini Alaska. No night, no dark at all. Another day lasts three minutes before becoming totally moonless, starless dark for two days. Or 48 hours at least. South. She's waiting for me. Stay sane. Stay alive. The story is that the world broke. The sky ripped open like a wet bedsheet. I don't know how or why. Any and everything your subconscious nightmares could vomit up came pouring out of that hole. They were formless as they came through, but then they were able to manifest in the flesh, make bodies, become real. The best theory was that our brain's ability to have faith, to believe, imagination, is what gave these things flesh. That was when people started dying from what they believed in. They manifested everywhere. I've seen angels, heroes, magic, monsters, demons, ghosts, fucking unicorns. Our way of life was screwed. I let my eyes pan back and forth looking at the ruined view of the I-5's landscape. Eviscerated asphalt, a shattered overpass. I take my hat off and use it to wipe sweat off my face. It's called an ivy cap, not a golfer's cap. Sheesh. 
I push my black Timberline glasses back up the bridge of my nose and look down at my New Balance cross trainers, black jeans, undershirt, overshirt, and fingerless gloves. Yay, fashion. Sweat gathers at the back holsters for beauty and husband, my 9mm Berettas. Yuck. My peripheral causes me to glance down at a severed hand, dried to beef jerky from the heat. An Elmo Sesame Street watch waves at me as the hands circle in rapid clockwise spins. The hand looks like it belongs to a six-year-old. Maybe eight. Jesus, help me. Grim whistles softly, making my eyes snap up from the, from the hand. There's a tanker truck pulled across the southbound lanes of the five ahead. It looks newly moved. Not only do you have to fear the monsters because they're real, you gotta fear normal people too. South. This is Life of the Law. We'll get back to our live recording of stories from inside San Quentin State Prison. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now let's get back to our live recording of stories inside San Quentin State Prison on November 12th. This is Life of the Law. Next up is Wayne Boatwright. Come on up, Wayne. I write for the survivors, um, the survivors of all our crimes. Um, Casper. The urge to return grew as my doom approached. Visions of fog-shrouded trails, tide pools, and craggy coves filled my restless sleeping. Like a salmon thrashing and plowing back up its origin stream to spawn and die, I struggled facing my doom. I realized that I must return to Casper with my children, for my children, my very existence demanded it. Home, I guess that's the right word. My childhood was a nomadic one, never staying anywhere long enough to make a home. I had always seen myself as a valley boy, having lost my innocence under LA's smog red moon. I know better now. Casper was a one-street ghost town between Mendocino and Noyo Harbor, far up the California coast. As I prepared to say goodbye to my family, it was Casper that haunted me, defined me. To take form as a person requires courage. I found mine in Casper. I discovered a sense of adventure and independence by scaling cliffs of rock and sand, searching for hidden treasures in tide pools, nests, and grottos. I developed confidence crossing razor-sharp rocks between crashing waves and using landscapes and the setting sun to work my way home at day's end. Unlike that magnificent fish that thrives in both salt and fresh waters, I feared my transition from free citizen to inmate. Soon I would be performing my citizen's duty to serve sentence in a new and brutal world. As I steeled myself to face this doom, I I worried for my precious little ones. They must navigate life's waters guided solely by their mother. Father was going up the river to be gone longer than their entire existence. Their life's course permanently altered by my crime. How could I say goodbye? Give something to guide them across the years of separation. What signs and tokens could serve to help them keep alive our family bond? I marvel at how the salmon finds its way across the vast Pacific to the mouth of its creation stream. I have only a map and vague memories to prod me. At this task, I cannot fail my family again. I was forged exploring Casper's wild, magic wilds. No map exists to develop such traits in the next generation. Still. Casper calls me, an incessant demanding that only there would I be able to retrieve and impart something of vital importance to my children. Behind the wheel in a manufactured confident smile, we headed north on the 101 toward Willits as I desperately searched my mind for the key to unlock my childhood treasure trove of memories. Upon arrival, we performed the customary 
tours of Lighthouse, Harbor, and Old Town, I discovered that Casper had been swallowed up and become a mere Mendocino suburb. I recognized none of it. On this last weekend before my incarceration, I could find no path back to my memories. We checked into the Skylark Lodge's last available room around 11 p.m. My family fell asleep to the crashing waves below. I could not rest. As the morning broke, the sea, the sea, she called me, overriding the constraints of adulthood, and I knew, as the salmon, my passage to the lodge's private cove was swift and sure. Out of the morning sea mist, a beach materialized, strewn with long tangles, bulbs, and ribbons of kelp, I inhaled the pungent scent with the waves and watched the undulating kelp forest suspended on the ocean's surface by iodine-colored bulbs. Here was the key. The smells. The smells transported me back. The memories, like waves, crashed. The riptide of recognition pulled me under and I held my breath as those memories swirled in my mind. I was taken back to the house and the barn by a path lined with blood-orange poppies to the stream across which lay fields of blackberries. As a boy, I had battled those bushes until my fingers were scarlet and arms scratched to the elbows. Evidence of my victory, loaded buckets of berries I would give to my grandmother to bake into pies and fill mason jars with tart sweetness. Just over the horizon was the trail through the pygmy forest of the Jug Handle Park waterfall. The cove's kelp scent had awakened these magic memories for me to share as treasures with my eight and six-year-old. As with the salmon, I spread these gifts on the stream bed of my little one's experiences before the current pulled me to prison. Over these next few fleeting days, my children collected tokens of driftwood, seashells, and beach glass as emblems of a father's love. I could only trust instinct that such would take hold in their fertile souls and keep them safe until my return. The current of time was pulling me to a new existence. Yet Casper had renewed me. When the sun sets on this adventure, I know I can find my way home. We're going to go a little bit off script. So the next gentleman that's coming up here is, is Theo Noble Butler. And he is going to be reading his spoken word prose poem entitled, What Do I Stand For? Um, the piece I have is called, What Do You Stand For? It's a part of a longer piece done in what we call hip verse. And I wonder if they'll laugh when I am dead. Why am I fighting to live when I'm just living to fight? Why am I trying to see when there ain't nothing in sight? Why am I trying to give when no one gives me a try? Why am I dying to live when I'm just living to die? One day while I was dreaming, my unborn son asked me, Daddy, what do you believe in? And as I turned to look upon his face instantly, my fears were clear. I fear the termination of my seed. I fear the termination of my breed. I fear that thin blue line that's been crossed by them so many times that I don't know whether are they friend or are they foe. I fear for my unborn child as his persistence begins to metamorphosize into existence as his reality changes into actuality and he is forced to stand upon the grounds of which some have alleged that my fears have no basis, that it's my fault that that thin blue line's been crossed by them so many times. I fear the loss where pieces of pledge promised to the public just as I fear the persistent violence perpetrated upon our people. So I scream because I have no voice, because it seems as though no one is listening. And I cry 
because I have no more tears to shed because so many shining stars are missing. Black lives matter, white lives matter, cop lives matter. From the hoods to the woods, from the herbs to the burbs, all lives ordained by God matter. It shouldn't matter the color of my skin or the clothes you wear. Indifferences are menaced just as retaliation is our bane. And if we continue to ascribe to the philosophy of an eye for an eye, then soon our whole world will be blind. If you're silent, you're compliant. If you think you have no bias, you're wrong. Rhetoric does not solve a problem just as denial doesn't make it go away. Ghosts are not excised by hiding one's face in tears are shed only for the righteous. So there's the saying that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So for the sake of my pride, yet to be realized, I refuse to let my fears let me fall. And so I choose, I choose to find a small glimmer of hope in the example of a young man that wears the number seven on his chest whose protest says that by taking a knee, I'm taking a stand. And I wonder if they'll laugh when I am dead. Why am I fighting to live if I'm just living the fight? Why am I trying to sing when there ain't nothing inside? Why am I trying to give when no one gives me a try? Why am I dying to live when I'm just living to die? James R. Metters will be our next reader, and he's going to be reading The New Universe. Zoom! Ray and John shot forward, but only their heads. Their bodies were stretched in the form of a multicolored light. Properties within the space-time continuum dictate 10 seconds must lapse before the lower and upper torso Fasten. Don't look back, Ray yelled. John looked back. Ah, where in the hell is my body? He shouted. <laughs> it's in the light, the space-time continuum. The space continuum, John mumbled. Don't worry, it will catch up in a few. I adjusted the GPS warp safety protocols in case of asteroid fields, Ray explained loudly. Their destination was the planet Afrogenesis five light years from San Francisco and the new city of Berkeley, which had become a state-of-the-art cannabis plantation. <laughs> John stared on wide-eyed. Seconds later, their bodies caught up. Shh! Eh, 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 eh. Whoa, that was crazy, John shouted, feeling the instant singe of his body fastened like a robotic transformer. The boys laughed and transitioned out of jump. They landed on Afrogenesis in a protective blue fluorescent shield which covered their bodies like a tailored suit. Scattered abroad in the vast terrain, blue shields were everywhere. Everyone was dancing. In the new universe, rhythm is equivalent to air. If you do not have rhythm, you are L7 squared, <laughs> devoid of funk as defined by James Brown, the godfather of soul. Here, funk is rhythm, and rhythm is time. Without rhythm, time is displaced, and one is late for everything. When you get ready to eat, your food has already digested. When you get ready to have sex, your partner is already done. By the time you get to work, your shift has ended, and you do not get paid. Therefore, rhythm is mandatory. 
Before the initiation of the Second Big Bang, intelligent design considered cultural ancestry. It was clear that many ethnicities did not have funk. Indians hobbled to the beat of a drum, the Chinese did slow motion karate, and 90% of white people could not dance. <laughs> However, Africans of American descent had too much funk and were the perfect origin of species to teach rhythm through the art of dance. We got two hours to do what we came for, Ray, with eyes of that as hazelnut and skin dark cold but light as many evening suns spun around, did the splits and pop lock. Ha, I can't dance without music, John said, green eyed, blind and fair. He couldn't dance with music. <laughs> the sounds are in your shield. Just think of any song you like and the neurotransmitters in your brain will tether with the shield's particle stimulator and produce the song. Think of three songs like a mixtape. Watch this. Ray folded his arms and bobbed his head. The electric sound of Michael Jackson's hit song, Beat It, reverberated. John looked on amused. Instantly, the music switched to Hall and Oates. She's a maniac. Ray did the running man. In a swift transition, he held the air like an invisible woman. The soft melody of Luther Vandross, if this world were mine, feel the air. John stood in awe, watching Ray slow dance. You gotta show me how to do that, John said. Just think of a song and start moving, Ray shouted. Second span. Come on now, we ain't got all day, Ray warned. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Auspiciously, a melody came to life. Ba, 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 I know this much is true. John flapped his shoulders and bobbed his head like an ostrich that had been tranquilized. <laughs> Ray gave an approving sly smile, but immediately the song switched to Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. John went crazy. He twisted his body, waved his hands, and jumped around. The boy went way off beat. Houston, we've got problems, Ray mumbled, <laughs> shaking his head. Subsequently, an idea quickly came to mind. Ray calculated the beat. When he, he jumped and came down and did the slide, John watched and began to mimic the move. Yeah, yeah, that's it, Ray said. This would go down in history. They were doing a partial electric slide to a rock song. John missed the slide a few times, but he was on it. Ray stopped dancing. He looked out into the planet's galactic landscape. A slew of African instructors intermingled with fluorescent shields conducting rhythmic moves. Ray was proud to be alive in this universe. Every race shared purpose. All people lived in harmony, and ultimately, the universe was in control. Thank you. <laughs> Coming up will be Lawrence Pele again, and he's going to be reading for Julian Paget, a.k.a. Luke. Uh, Julian Paget, Luke, writes with charged passion that pulls at our imagination. The Penal Code Crimes is the book he is currently working on. Come on up, Lawrence. The medical staff finished checking all of the equipment in the live room at 4 a.m. that morning. Hours later in the well-lit gallery, the scene before Natalie Prager felt oppressive and unreal. She watched people in conversation, a young male correctional officer barking orders. She saw mouths moving, yet all she could hear was the tick-tock sound of the second hand on the clock as it quietly killed each second of time, thoughtfully murdering each minute of time. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Why is it so cold in here? She asked the older black officer standing to her left. Medical procedure. I don't understand, Natalie replied. It's kept cold so the ambient temperatures in the live room don't spoil the chemicals before they're administered to the prisoner. Spoil? Natalie asked. The new cocktails cause immediate brain death and ambient heat could distort the chemicals, Miss Prager, he said, looking right at her. You know me? She asked, surprised. Of course, I remember when the news camera caught you crying as they took her out of the courtroom, he said. That made me look weak, she replied. No, it made you look human, Miss Prager. 
Before Natalie could reply, a female correctional officer nodded at the lieutenant. He turned and crisply pressed the button on the wall. When the gallery curtain opened, the 40 spectators got their first look inside the live room. The woman lying on the table was Emily Lorraine Johnson. She had been found guilty of shooting her pimp years ago. Texas prosecutors had employed the legal theory of transferred intent, allowing the state to try and convict 14-year-old Emily as an adult. During that trial, Natalie had established that Emily had never intended to fire the weapon, that it went off while Emily had struggled to pull her infant son from the arms of her pimp. Now in her mid-40s, she lay there strapped to the table. Emily turned her head and looked out at Natalie and mouthed the words, it's okay, then closed her eyes. Natalie watched in horror as the chemicals traveled intravenously into Emily's left arm. The gathered onlookers observed Emily take one, two, three, then four long breaths and then stop. Everyone who had wanted her to pay for her crimes watched as Emily Lorraine Johnson simply left. The lead nurse checked Emily's pupils with a pen light. No brain activity, she said without expression. Then she went through the three criteria mandated by the Texas Medical Association. Emily's eyes did not move when the nurse flushed her ears with cold water. There was no facial grimace when the nurse poked a pin in her nail bed. And finally, Emily did not cough when her throat was swabbed. Official time of death, 9.06 a.m. Official time of brain death, 9.11 a.m. Natalie and the lieutenant both stared down at Emily through the gallery window. Do you think she's in there? Natalie asked. No, he replied with a slight quaver, looking straight ahead. While officers removed straps from the dead woman's wrists and ankles, Elizabeth Smith, the deputy district attorney who had opposed Natalie in this case, got up and walked to the window, just as all hell broke loose. Emily Lorraine Johnson, the dead woman in the live room at Brillsmore State Prison, bolted up, her back ramrod straight, gasping for air. She clawed at her chest over her heart area, then with both hands grabbed her head and screamed. Her final act of defiance of death came when she faced the deputy district attorney and puked, the gallery window intercepting the yellowish chunks of nearly digested food. Officers, spectators, and nurses screamed and called on every name of God they could utter, and the young male correctional officer who earlier had been barking orders released his bowels in his pants. Natalie banged her fist on the gallery window. Emily, Emily, she screamed, can you hear me? Natalie turned to see Elizabeth Smith pull out her phone and furiously begin punching numbers. When their eyes locked, Natalie took to banging on the glass with both hands. Emily! Natalie hollered above the noise in the gallery. Emily gave no response. Natalie almost lost her footing as her arm was yanked by the lieutenant. Come with me, Miss Prager. Now! He pulled her forcefully through two doors, then made a right turn which led straight to late Emily Lorraine Johnson. Seconds later, the deputy DA came rushing in. Emily, do you know who I am? insisted Natalie. No, said Emily, wiping her mouth. What, what happened? Where am I? She threw up again. Arrest that woman, Lieutenant. Do it now, ordered the DA. I don't have the authority to arrest her. She's dead, the, the Lieutenant retorted. Do you know who you are? Natalie asked, wiping Emily's face. I'm, I, I'm Emily, I'm Emily, Emily said, trembling violently. She knows who she is, Natalie said as she locked eyes with her courtroom rival. Put her in custody now, Lieutenant. Now, damn it! The deputy district attorney screamed. What's happening? Emily demanded, sobbing so hard her chest and sides were heaving. My God, why am I here? Emily, you're dead. The state just executed you, and I'm your new attorney. Tick tock. Tick tock. Michael Yaya Cook, he is going to be reading from the final chapter an excerpt of a memoir that he's written, uh, No Hardship Lasts Forever. It isn't the sensationalized things I've missed being imprisoned, such as the love of a good woman, her touch, her laughter and the bouquet of her perfume mingled with the musky odor of our passionate lovemaking. I missed the shared moments of intimacy afterwards and falling blissfully asleep in each other's arms. I missed the wind in my face as I ride my hog on sunny days and sitting on the porch watching the kaleidoscopic colors of an autumn sunset 
I miss going wherever I want, whenever I want. But most of all, I miss my freedom, which perpetually aches inside my heart like a lost and very special love. Because I'd rather be wanted than had, escaping is never far from my thoughts. When I first entered prison, I would stroll conspicuously around the yard, looking up at the top of the walls, measuring and searching for any breach in security. But after two or three years of despair, I was crushed by the oppressiveness of it all. My fantasies for freedom fluttered to the ground like a bird with a broken wing. Young men in a prison at 18 and 19 years of age with long hair and even longer sentences. And 10 years later, they're still inside with the same style of long hair because for them, time stands still. Some men tattoo their arms, backs, and chests. Some even go to the extreme and tattoo their faces and necks. The tattoos are usually something hideous, such as death, death heads, weapons or reptiles, or women with exaggerated breasts and buttocks. The images symbolize either evil or death. It's as if they've drawn portraits of their lives and crimes upon their bodies. After 15 or 20 years inside, you may become somebody respected and admired by the younger, less experienced prisoners who look up to you for your rep or criminal exploits. But God, the price you have to pay for such trivial ego stroking. No family, no real friends, no money, no home, devastated hopes and shattered dreams and all those wasted years. Unfortunately, some convicts die by the hands of another behind these walls. Some turn gay, and others lose their minds, falling helplessly into a labyrinth of despair and insanity that they will never find their way out of. The cell you live in is a slightly enlarged sarcophagus where your emotional development is placed in a state of suspended animation due to the lack of external experience with loved ones. Most men decorate their cells, adorning the walls with pictures and paintings and proverbs, but I've never done that. I've never painted a cell wall. I've never tried to make a cell homey or pleasant because prison isn't home to me and it is not pleasant. It is just a squalid bus stop and I've never accepted my fate being here. Incarceration enforces you to relinquish every shred of dignity when you are searched at whim, stripped bare, deprived of all privacy, and being groped by the guards is demeaning. You feel as if you're being violated and your dignity is being raped. All you possess in prison is your personal honor and your pride because everything else has been taken away from you. You sit in a cage staring at nothing and wonder how the hell you gotten yourself into such an utterly wretched situation. You relive your transgressions and crimes inside your mind in minute details, futilely searching for anything that could have made even the slightest difference to alter the course of events that brought you here. And after beating rationality into unconsciousness, you come to the conclusion that it was fate predestined from the very beginning, and there was nothing you could have done to change it, it would have happened anyway. So you dwell into the abstract, philosophizing until you come up with some self-serving justification that makes sense out of your predicament. I am a prisoner, and an unwilling one at that. It tears me up inside to be where I am, and I'll never want it any other way. I'd rather suffer with dignity than alleviate the pain with accepting institutionalization. Prison treachery and perversion are sicknesses that eat away at the center of your soul like terminal cancer. Everything about prison life distorts reality, starting with the basic assumption that imprisonment can alter criminal behavior, when the truth is prison entrenches it more firmly. 
the insidious nature of incarceration is that it perverts and destroys every skill a man needs to live productively in society. There are no secrets in prison. Sincerity, hypocrisy, bravery, cowardice, good and evil are all laid bare. Prison brings out the best and the worst in people because prisoners develop intensely deep personalities. We interact with each other heart to heart, not face to face. Our conversations frequently revolve around hope because no man, especially a prisoner, can live without hope. Hope that there is indeed a dawn at the end of this very long, dark night and that no hardship lasts forever. There's always an end to it. Thank you. This is Life of the Law. Stories Told Live at San Quentin is a co-production of the creative writing program Brothers in Pen at San Quentin State Prison and Life of the Law. James Rollins recorded the event. Tony Gannon, our senior producer, designed the sound and produced this episode. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Special thanks to Juan Haynes and Linda Eckes of the San Quentin News, Zoe Mollery of the San Quentin Creative Writing Program, and Lieutenant Sam Robinson and Chrissy Hohabashvili of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation for their support. Katie McMurrin was our studio engineer. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes behind-the-scenes notes from our reporters. This week, Zoe Mullery tells us more about the creative writing program inside San Quentin. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. As a nonprofit, we're supported in part by grants from foundations, but it's really your support that makes our production of stories like these possible. Please go to our website and make a gift to Life of the Law. Next on Life of the Law, we're presenting the first part of our two-hour election year special on the state of the state courts. That's next on Life of the Law. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and make a gift, whatever you can, to help cover the costs of production. Let's do this together. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.